You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Well, by now it's clear the groundhog is right. We had to bring back out our jackets. We've got clouds up on the sandias, and it's good. It's good. I'll tell you, one of the things that I love doing in Albuquerque is getting out on the trails. Hiking, biking, whatever I can do, I like it. No, I love it. In fact, last night it was cold enough that no one else wanted to go with me, but it's just good to get outside, to see the mountains, to see the beauty of New Mexico. Well, a couple of weeks ago I was walking with a friend and we were headed toward Bear Canyon. And you're probably familiar with the dam there at Bear Canyon. Well, at the bottom, there is, uh, there's a gate. And Albuquerque does an amazing job of taking care of these trails. And Don and I have been watching this for a year, year and a half. We've been watching as the trails kind of get rerouted. Maybe fence goes up to block people from going into areas they're not supposed to go. Maybe cacti are planted to keep those mountain bikers from starting a new trail, right? All of these things, even, even digging trenches and ditches to make the water run off in just the right way so that the trails are, are not ruined. So this friend and I, when we got to the bottom of the dam, there's a turquoise gate that blocks the road, and there's a path around. And the big rock next to this path was moved, redirecting, changing how one goes around the gate. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That's going to make it a little more difficult on me on my mountain bike. And we got up to the top, and the gate at the top of the dam that keeps people from coming down the road has a similar setup. There are rocks that are close to those poles, making it very narrow. But the path along the side for the mountain bikers, a huge boulder had been rolled to block it. Now, usually I can make sense and I can just appreciate what's going on to make these paths better, safer, kind of to minimize traffic so the wildlife and the the vegetation can flourish, but I cannot make sense of why these rocks have been moved. Sure enough, whenever I biked past it the next day, I did have to get off my bike in order to get through those tight spaces. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's what it's about, but I haven't yet figured it out. So if you figure it out, you let me know, because I know it's not a prank. No prankster could move these big boulders. Now, what I've been doing on these Sundays for the last several weeks is flipping over rocks. We've been looking at things new, wanting to take an outsider's perspective on Jesus. And that's been really much my intention because a lot of times as Christians, as insiders, we don't have a fresh look on how others perceive us. And so we've been taking this outsider's view of Jesus and learning some really important things from a guy, a biographer, who was something of an outsider himself. He wasn't like the other biographers of Jesus who were disciples and very close to Jesus. He was someone who gathered up all the stories, all the accounts, to make an orderly account. And he gives us this systematic doctor's type look 
at Jesus' life. And we learn a lot of things about Jesus. That sinners love being around Jesus. They want to be around Him to no end. We learn that Jesus will not use His power for His own good. We'll learn that Jesus isn't even going to exploit His own position to His own advantage to make things work out for Him. He's been pressing us to think about the people that we don't have empathy for. Or to think about purity, not so much about separation, but association. Making us think about the difference between being right and being good. And it could be that over this series, maybe you've missed a sermon or two, and you need to go back and look at some of those and hear some of those outsiders' view of Jesus. So feel free to do that on our website. Today, I think I need to remind us again that Christians don't have the best reputation. As much as people love Jesus, they're not as much in love with the followers of Jesus. Sometimes we make it difficult for other people. And I think it's important for us insiders to remember that we have a reputation, a, a way that we're perceived that we don't recognize and we don't often see. And sometimes we're blind to it. We're blind to how others view us. And so it's good to take an outsider's view and turn that rock over, think about it in a new way, to really see if maybe what they're seeing doesn't provide some insight for us. Several weeks ago, I mentioned a few things from a survey. Just listed them off that people will say about Christians. And I want to revisit some of those, not just to give them as words that we can nod our head to, but put some flesh on them. Take them into the, the realm of examples. So one of the things that, that outsiders say about Christians is that they just want to convert us, to evangelize us. That Christians are intent on changing us and making us better. And these same outsiders kind of just feel like they've got a target on their back. That that's the main basis of a relationship with a Christian, is that they want that person to come onto the inside. And they look at it and they see all the changes that we want them to make, and they see our lives, and sometimes they think, I don't know that I want that life. The Christian life is not one that I desire or one that I want to follow. Another thing that, that people will say about Christians is that they don't like their politics. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me to look at that from the inside, from the outside as, as outsiders to Christianity. So here's an example. They will look at us and they will, they will know that a large majority of Christians are anti-abortion. So they hear that. And they're like, okay, they're anti-abortion, they're pro-life, but then they're for the death penalty, or they're for other forms of contraception. So just think with me about the confusion of someone from the outside, where they think, okay, they're pro-life, but they're okay with killing people. So which is better? Is it, we just need to save the babies? Or what about the adults or the criminals that have made a mistake? You see how that works? You kind of put yourself in their skin and you think about what they might be seeing in our own politics and it makes it a little bit of a different story. 
They look at us and they say, okay, these people want to legislate things about sexuality, about birth control, about who can be with whom. And they hear that and then they look at us as we describe what normal is and they say, do those Christians even follow their own norms? Do they follow their own sexual ethic? And we have to kind of sink our head a little bit because we know that sometimes we don't. And they listen to us pray for the moral integrity of our world, our country, our nation, whatever. But then they see our lives and they wonder, should we take them seriously or not? Another claim, and probably the top claim, and probably one that most gets thrown at Christians, is hypocrisy. Lives not matching up with what they say, what we say to be true. Right? And that, that's fair. Some of the examples that we've had to kind of jump out of our skin in, that I've just given us to think about provide that example of hypocrisy. Well, here's the deal. While that's a fair claim that can be made against Christians, it's also a fair claim against everybody. What human being is not a hypocrite at some level? All of us. I don't care what their moral standing is. All of us are unable to live up even to the values that we hold to be true. There's a level of inconsistency to each one of us. So it's not entirely fair to take hypocrisy and use it as a reason not to buy into Christianity. Because we're all there. This is ground that we all share. It's something that we all must deal with. That our standards don't even get manifest in our own lives so maybe what needs to happen is for Christians to lead the way here. With our mistakes, rather than trying to minimize them or hide them or justify them or pretend that they're not there at all, just dismiss them entirely, maybe we need to own some of those inconsistencies, to acknowledge them, to, to even be able to say to someone who calls us on it, Okay, yeah, you're right. That doesn't seem to line up. These two things about Christians don't seem to line up. So how do you, Mr. or Mrs. Outsider, how do you deal with the inconsistencies that are in your life? What do you do? Teach us so that we can learn. Do you see that slight twist? That difference of approach of learning from others? You see, we don't have to toss out our extreme value of human life or our extreme esteem for the sacredness of sexuality. But we can. We can acknowledge our own mistakes. We can acknowledge that, yes, there are times when we too are inconsistent as well. And I think that will make us as Christians a little more given to think, a little bit more mindful in our opinions and our thoughtfulness, so that people can't just punch a hot-button issue, like, say, abortion, and think they can somehow control us. That if they somehow seem a little bit Christian, that okay, we're going to all in endorse them and dismiss everything about their lives. Okay, well these examples are intense, right? 
we've got Jesus to contend with. And so I'm going to invite you to stand as we read the beginning of this story from Luke chapter 8. If you're able to stand, that's great. I'm going to read the first nine verses of Luke chapter 8. Soon afterwards, he, that's Jesus, went on through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. When a great crowd had gathered, and people from town after town came to Jesus, he said to them in a parable, A sower went out to sow seed, and he sowed. And some seed fell on the path and was trampled on. The birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it, it withered from a lack of moisture. Some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. Some seed fell into the good soil, and when it grew, it produced a hundredfold. And as he said this, he called out, Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Then his disciples asked him what the parable meant. He said to them, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others I speak in parables so that looking they may not perceive, and listening they may not understand. The word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke. Okay. This story is tough. This story is difficult. It's kind of like Jesus has shoved a rock right into my path. Because I don't know about you and how you hear this, but it sounds like the point is to confuse people. Did you catch that? They're ever listening, but never hearing. Uh, ever seeing, but never really perceiving. And he tells this story, this parable, something that's thrown along to the side, that's meant to illustrate, it's meant to explain by using real life. And yet, it just confuses not only the outsiders, but the disciples. And they pulled Jesus aside and they're like, okay, tell us what this means. We want to know. And Jesus doesn't help it. He doesn't, his answer doesn't make it more clear. He says, you guys get the secrets. But those on the outside, they don't. You'll get the description, but outsiders Will not. That's what it seems to be saying to me, and it makes it difficult. It's almost just like Jesus has shoved a rock in my, uh, my path. Does he really want us to be confused? Well, we have to stand back from the scene and look at who's there. And Luke, being the outsider that he is, gives us, gives us some insight that we wouldn't already know. That women are right there close to Jesus. Did you notice that? Women that have names and women that don't have names. He names off uh, Mary of Magdalene. Okay, we, in the inside, 
think of Mary Magdalene. Okay, yeah, sure. Magdalene's like her last name. Well, that's where she's from. And where she's from is not all that great of a place. That's a place for known women of irrepute. Now, we could talk about women, or we could say that's where guys know they can go to find a woman of ill repute. Mary Magdalene is probably the very same woman who in the previous chapter, chapter 7, was the woman who came into the, the party with the Pharisees at Simon's house and took care of the feet of Jesus. She's probably the same one. Well, look at what other women are there with Jesus. This, this woman, Joanna, who is the, the spouse of Chusa, who's an attendant to the king. Now, you'll notice that these women, these people, are mentioned without their partners. They're mentioned as individuals. So here we have this aristocratic woman whose husband is a servant, an attendant to the king, who's right there with Mary Magdalene. That's strange. That's very odd. And then we have all these people that we don't know much about, like Susanna uh, and other women who were there providing support, literally providing financial support and hanging around Jesus. Now this is shocking and astounding. For one, that these women of different social classes, different ranks, are right there with Jesus. And for two, that they're right alongside of the men. That was not common for women to get to hear the same teaching as men and to be so close, so close to Jesus that they're providing support for him. So, the group has various genders, various people of different sexual reputation, uh, very different uh, social class and rank and status, and they're all right there with Jesus. And he chooses to tell this story of a farmer that is somewhat confusing, especially for us. We're more and more removed from farming as a career for us. Gardening, we could, we could get, right? We understand how seeds work. We, we see this gardener and we think he's a little confused because if he's in New Mexico and he's scattering seed, some is falling on the sidewalk. Strange place for seed, hard-packed sidewalk. Or what about seeds scattered into the rock garden? Again, not where you want to plant. Or what about over in the thorny bush area that you haven't even bothered to maintain? Yep, seed goes there and on ground that is perfect. It's tilled, it's fertilized, it's ready. And of course, it produces a croup, a million fold, we could say. And then Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, listen. He drops the mic and he walks away. And they're left confused wondering what this story is about. The way Jesus' stories work is they stick in people's minds. They frustrate their understanding. It's where they have to think about them and wrestle with them. Where it's not always easy and plain. Where sometimes... To really find understanding, you have to work at it. Now today, I'm not going to spend a lot of time making distinction between different types of soil. There's been a lot of ink and a lot of words spent on that. And I think that kind of misses the point of Luke's parable, as he renders Jesus' parable. Because the point is not the different kinds of soil. The point is that there's soil that works and there's soil that doesn't. 
It doesn't really matter why that soil doesn't work, whether it's thorns that choke us out or hard-packed path that doesn't receive. It's just not ready, and it's not good soil, and it won't happen. I also don't think it's helpful to, to use this as a chance to label people or to use it for evangelism. Well, you'll find that there are certain kinds of people that are like hard-packed soil. I don't think that helps to label and categorize people because it takes the focus off of where I think Jesus was putting it. Because we have a choice of whether or not we will believe. I know that some people have more opportunity than others. I know that people have more time learning and growing than others do. But that choice is ours. And God has chosen all of us for belief. He's not predetermining your heart as a path heart or thorny heart. He wants all of us to believe. The point is on having the kind of soil in your heart that welcomes and receives the message. The point is about being good soil. And if you look at the big contrast of the people that are around Jesus, we see it plain as day. The people that should have the soil that is tilled up in their hearts, the religious leaders, those that have been trained their whole lives, they're not the good soil. But these strange women and these, this strange collection, this band of men, they have soil in their hearts that is receptive. It's interested in what Jesus is doing. Well, there's some things that I think we can take away from this, some things that we can think about as we try to nurture good soil in our own lives. And, and one of them is about sharing the word that we have. To not be stingy with the things that we learn and what we know. Now this is important. The things that we learn in our groups, or in our classes, in sermons, or in teachings, these are things that we can share. Almost like we're sharing tips with other people about how to wash their clothes, or some some uh, way to, to, to have a cheat code on life, right? Something that's a good tip. These things are meant to be shared. They're not meant to be kept to ourselves, but shared without restraint. We don't want to be stingy with the Word of God that we've been given, the insights that we've been provided. These are things to discuss, to discuss at lunch, to post about, to engage with. When our kids come home from Kids Clubhouse, or from youth ministry? Do we discuss with them the things that they've learned, what they've experienced? How do we learn from others who are learners in the kingdom of God? See, this soil is about producing fruit and not giving up quickly, staying in it to learn and to grow. Well, Jesus' followers also teach us something else. But the point is not about somebody else's reception of this message. The point is about our reception of the message. It's not about all the soil that's out there. It's our heart and how we are going to receive this. Are we going to practice the things that we learn? Are we going to put it into our hands and our feet? Or will we spend our time obsessing about other people's rejection? The people that were banging our head against the wall thinking, well, why won't this cousin? Why won't this my spouse? Why won't my friend? We spend so much time 
worried about those who reject it, and not as much time with those who are ready. In fact, sometimes I think we tend to decide who fits and who doesn't. We've kind of already predetermined what their soil is, and you know, they may or may not be a good person. Well, change the way that you look at the world. Not for those that fit, but for those that God is working on. Don't predetermine. Let God's Word do the work. Let God be active in people's lives. And the reason that we're you know, unfazed by their rejection is because that we do care about those that do care. Okay, so we're sharing broadly. We're, we're focused on our reception, on those who are responding well. The third one's a little more difficult for outsiders because at some level, outsiders will not get following Jesus because they're not living it. Now, that might sound a little strange. It gets to be difficult to follow Jesus because we're not actually following Jesus. And so I kind of have a dare, a dare for people who are outsiders to try it, to try following Jesus for six months, a year, to do it honestly, not looking for it to fail, not waiting and saying, ah, oh, it's not working, I'm giving up, but sticking in there and trying it, really giving it a fair shake like a scientist doing research. Does this really work? That's a dare that I would give to outsiders to try it, to honestly be this kind of good soil that receives. I can tell you that here at First Christian, we are the kind of people that are enduring. That's who you are. Through difficult and tough times, whether that's difficult relationships, job loss, being let go, difficulty with our kids, financial difficulties, COVID, you name it, we're not allowing those externals to affect our ability to persist and to endure, to endure patiently. Probably the thing that sums up this passage the best is how it ends. In chapter 8, down in verse 16, it seems to go to a different story, but it connects. No one, after lighting a lamp, hides it under a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who enter may see light. For nothing is hidden that will not be disclosed, and anything that's secret that will not become known and open to the light. Then, pay attention to how you listen. For to those who have, more will be given. And from those who do not have, even what they seem to have will be taken away. Verse 18. Pay attention to how you listen. Pay attention to the rocks that are turned over in your life. Pay attention to how your listen seems to involve your whole body. Pay attention, that seems like the eye, where we give sustained focus and gaze to the work of God in our lives. We have that eyeballs that are, whatever we give our attention and our focus to, will capture our hearts. How? Well, that sounds like a, a manual, right? A how-to manual, a doing, an action. Pay attention to how you're doing this. How are you living it out? And then listening. 
Do we have ears open? Ears to hear what God is challenging us to do be. In a, path like, in, a, in a sermon like this, it's easy to focus on the different kinds of listeners, those that are eager and those that are non-responsive, to really go that direction with the seeds. But I'm taking us into a different realm. To think right now about those rocks, those real rocks, the unexplainable movement of these rocks that are right there in our path and we don't know why they're there. I'm inviting us to be curious. I don't have an answer to why they moved those rocks into the path. Haven't figured it out yet. But it makes me stay in the game. I think that's what Jesus does. He invites us, no matter how long we've been following him, to stay in the game, to stay on that path, identifying those obstacles and admitting them, praying them, lifting them up to, to Jesus, and saying, this confuses me about following you. Why? God's okay with that. God's okay with our questions. Invite that into prayer. Prayer that is sustained. Prayer that might even lead toward understanding. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are the giver of life. Thank you that we can travel this path of life with you. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we can pay attention to how we listen and begin to see these obstacles in our life as something that might teach us about you. God, we pray that more and more people come into your kingdom, more and more people come to know you, that they will enter and receive the gifts that you have promised for them. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and for all eternity. Amen.